A full-scale search in the Ayers Rock area today failed to find any trace of a nine-week-old baby girl believed to have been taken by a dingo or wild dog last night. She is Azaria Chamberlain. Why are we so fascinated by tragedy? Yes, we were on a caravan trip in 1981 and um, we stayed at Ayers Rock in the same camping ground where all this happened, close to the rock. Why do we always want to get to the bottom of what happened? That's where I first became involved. Talking to the locals there and everything, they were quite certain that Lindy Chamberlain was innocent. In 1980, the death of a a nine-and-a-half-week-old baby captured Australia's imagination and set off an epic legal battle. Her mother, Lindy, was tried for her murder. The Chamberlain case was novel and unique, both in the evidence it received and the publicity it generated. Welcome to History Lab, where we explore the gaps between us and the past. I'm Tamsin Peach, your host and historian, and today we're looking at the afterlife of evidence. What happens when the evidence collected in a court case no longer proves there was a crime, but just a tragedy? And why do we preserve things that have been touched by the law? We we could just well imagine it had happened because cooking at the barbecue there, these uh, big dogs came around. If you turned your back, I think they would have grabbed the meat. Well, I thought how easily some dingo or dog or something could get into a tent. Elizabeth Guy was one of the thousands of people who wrote Lindy Chamberlain intimate and personal letters. We'll be hearing from Lindy herself a little bit later. But first, what inspired a nation to become pen pals with one of the most misunderstood women in modern Australia? Do you remember the very first letter you wrote? I probably wrote to her about having been at Ayers Rock and in the same spot and everything stayed there and how how I knew that she was innocent. Dear Lindy. To Mrs Chamberlain. Hi, Lindy. My mum said there was not enough evidence to prove you were guilty. Described as Australia's murder trial of the century. Would allege that Lindy Chamberlain had cut the throat of her baby daughter Azaria while sitting in the front seat of their family. What a story! What a piece of work! The shock, the disbelief at the jury's decision. The truth will be revealed. We'll clearly see that it was a dingo that took your beautiful daughter. I'm sick of hearing about it. All the media hype about your case. Yours sincerely. Have courage, dear friend. I love you as only another mother in trouble could. Richard. Phoebe. Barbara. Sam. Margaret. These letters were all triggered by a legal event, which is uh, either the charging of the Chamberlains or the coronial process or the trial or the conviction of the Chamberlains. These letters record how ordinary people, non-lawyers, responded to a legal event. Catherine Biber. She's a criminologist, historian and professor of law at the University of Technology, Sydney. And she's dedicated over a decade of her life to understanding how we preserve the evidence used in criminal trials. I suppose in my field, which is in criminal procedure, criminal facts are often traumatic and dreadful and violent. Uh, The way that these materials are presented in legal judgments is usually quite arid and quite emotionless. And that is one of law's aspirations, is to strip all the emotion out of law. In August 1980, Azaria Chamberlain disappeared from her family's tent during a camping trip at Uluru, then known as Ayers Rock. 
Her mother, Lindy, was tried for her murder. Described as Australia's murder trial of the century. The prosecution devised an elaborate theory that Lindy had killed Azaria. In order to believe that Lindy was guilty, you needed to believe that she briefly excused herself from a barbecue where she was preparing food for one of her children, took herself and the baby to the passenger seat of the car, cut the baby's throat with nail scissors, hid the baby in a camera bag, and then returned to the barbecue. So just the weirdness of the proposition that she must have done all of those things in killing her baby is incredibly striking and doesn't even tell a kind of coherent narrative that you could possibly believe about a woman who's killed her baby. So I think just the strangeness of the Crown case tells us a lot about what people must have been willing to believe at that time. The court has decided what happened to Azaria Chamberlain at Dares Rock in August 1980, but whether this puts an end to the rumours is another question. Is the story over yet or is there more to come? I don't think the story is going to be over for many, many years. It wasn't until a fourth coronial inquest in 2012, 32 years after the death of Azaria, that the Northern Territory coroner determined that she had been killed by a dingo, as her parents had said all along. What occurred on the 17th of August 1980 was that shortly after Mrs Chamberlain placed Azaria in the tent, a dingo or dingoes entered the tent, took Azaria and carried and dragged her from the immediate area. Mrs Chamberlain Crichton, Mr Chamberlain, Aidan and your extended families. Please accept my sincere sympathy on the death of your special and loved daughter and sister, Azaria. I'm so sorry for your loss. The evidence left behind after the Chamberlain's legal saga that lasted decades is complex. Some of it no longer exists. Some of it's not publicly accessible. And a lot of it is the personal property of the Chamberlain family. So let's just step back for a minute. How do things become evidence in the first place? So the access to evidence, the use and the interpretation of evidence is governed by lots and lots of rules and procedures during the trial. A lot of material that we regard as evidence existed before the trial when it wasn't evidence. It was just somebody's personal possessions. So it's only regarded as evidence for the narrow period during which the rules of evidence apply. But those rules and procedures don't continue to operate after the conclusion of the criminal trial. But of course, a lot of the evidentiary material continues to exist. But what happened to the clothes that baby Azaria was wearing that night? What happens to a murder weapon in a criminal case? Where does all this stuff end up? So... At the end of proceedings, the materials are distributed and then they continue sometimes to live their own life, not governed by legal processes. And some of the lives that evidentiary materials live are very surprising, um, sometimes a little bit creepy and weird. And so I've been trying to investigate all the different ways that evidence continues to live after it's not required for an evidentiary purpose anymore. 
And one of the best examples of the afterlife of evidence here in Australia is the Chamberlain case. And despite all the criminal evidence that was generated in the case, the strange reality is there was no crime. And so after we've all agreed that the Chamberlain case was a miscarriage of justice, this isn't criminal evidence anymore, even though it continued to survive because it was criminal evidence. It was kept in a forensic institution until we all agreed that it wasn't criminal evidence anymore, but that we need to preserve it to now preserve the memory of a miscarriage of justice. Most of the Chamberlain evidence has ended up in our public institutions, the National Library and the National Museum. But its collection and curation presents a lot of contradictions. They came to us still with the tamper-proof seals intact. The jumpsuit that Azaria was wearing on the day she died is not on public display. This tiny but monumental item of clothing is safely stowed away in the National Museum's archive in Canberra. Lindy gave Catherine special permission to view it. So this is the jumpsuit. Mm. It is quite stained, so I'll just warn you. Yeah, so I was very surprised that I wasn't better prepared for the experience of seeing this clothing. And when I saw it, I saw it in a uh, museum repository in a very kind of sterile room. The items were all stored individually in plastic tubs. Uh, They had some kind of tissue paper or other kind of material surrounding them. Um, the curator and the conservator were wearing latex gloves. Nothing was to be touched with naked hands. Uh, there was this huge white sterile table that we looked on at things on, and they put these kind of shiny white pads on the table so that uh, these garments didn't have to touch a hard surface. Yeah, it's pretty confronting. And I think also the first time I saw it, I, you know didn't have nieces and I didn't really think about Mm. babies and now I see that I see how small it is and I think Mm. oh yeah that's pretty full on. I'm having a little cry. Yeah. So I was struck firstly by all of the markings that represent the attack of a wild dingo. all of the markings of something that's been dragged through desert sand and it's filthy and dirty and gnawed, and all of the markings that show the forensic scientific processes that were conducted upon it. So you can see ruled lines and you can see razor cuts and all of those things are preserved. But then once they assumed their form and they started to look like, for instance, a jumpsuit, I saw how small they were and it reminded me of how small Azaria was And it reminded me that these were her clothes. She'd once worn these clothes and she was this tiny baby and that she'd kind of lived and died in these garments and that her death had triggered this massive, epic misadventure for the Chamberlain family, but that that whole misadventure was resting upon these kind of tiny, filthy scraps of material. And so I was kind of overwhelmed by all these different realizations that she was small, that she existed, that these were her clothes, these were the last clothes she ever wore, that they were so damaged 
and that also now they were so carefully cared for and that they will survive to remind us about this case. So why do we need to preserve these things and their memory? Look, all of this material was brought into existence or preserved because it was associated with coronial and criminal proceedings. And this is often referred to as a criminal case. Certainly a lot of the popular books about it you might find in bookshops under true crime. And I think it's really important that the survival of this material reminds us that this was, in the end, not a crime and that Lindy and Michael Chamberlain were victims of a miscarriage of justice. So I think if we're going to take on the responsibility of preserving all of these materials in the afterlife, we have to remember that this is the afterlife of the tragic death of a baby, but this is not the afterlife of a crime. Hello, is that Lindy? Hello. There we go. Now, sorry, I just had to turn it off and turn it on again, that old trick. That's Olivia Rosenman, our producer, on the phone to Lindy Chamberlain-Creighton. How did you decide to start keeping certain items? Well, I think after death it's natural that you look at a person's belongings and, you know, some of them mean more to you than others and you'll immediately discard maybe some things and others you just keep because they mean something to you. That's where you start. And then once it evolves into a court case, you realise that all sorts of things that you didn't initially realise to begin with are going to be important and are needed for court And so you begin deliberately keeping things. And while a lot of those things were returned to Lindy, they were often irrevocably changed by the legal process. Things that you give them come back with holes in them. My shoes, they cut down every seam that existed. There's holes in your blankets and there's in your clothes and, you know, you can't mend them after that. But Lindy wasn't just keeping her own belongings. Every room in the house had been overtaken by court material and letters, letters, letters. There were boxes and tea chests in the garage and on the back veranda. And it's like, she can't move in this house. So people wrote to the Chamberlains who identified themselves as other campers at the campsite who had not previously been interviewed but could potentially be uh, available witnesses. People were writing with evidence about the capabilities of dingoes, which was not otherwise well-known or presented, and they were collecting this material in the hope that it might be useful evidentiary material. Lindy received tens of thousands of letters from ordinary Australians containing condolences, comfort and blame. This is a large collection of letters and it's one of the last large collections of Australian correspondence before the advent of email. So there probably won't be another similar large personal collection of correspondence again. So the scale of the 
collection of letters is important, but the fact that it blends material that might have an evidentiary use with material that is not evidentiary and personal is connected by the fact that Lindy herself thought to keep all of these letters. And at first she kept them because she didn't have an alternative plan for dealing with them, but after a while the scale of the collection itself was a reason to keep it. And now that collection lives in the archives of the National Library. An evidentiary life might be followed by what I'm calling a kind of cultural life or a creative life, where materials might survive or be revived or be destroyed or be uh, recreated, re-understood. And I think that particularly in the last decade or so, we've experienced what some creative practitioners would call the archival turn, where people are turning towards the archive, not because they want to find old documents that contain transactions and facts from the olden days, but because those materials can be reused and re-understood in another way. So the first actual experience was walking into this this treasure trove where they have, if you can believe it, 21 kilometres worth of manuscripts uh, and papers Alana Valentine is a playwright. On the very first day, the manuscripts librarian took me up to where Lindy Chamberlain Creighton's papers were, and there are 199 boxes at that stage. Lindy has since given more, and there's now 213. But she said, here they are, and they are all in small filing cardboard boxes, and it just stretched for, you know, very long island. Again, these waves of <laughs> sort of fear and, and dread swept over me because I, I just sort of thought, how am I going to get through this? Alana wrote a play based on the letters people sent to Lindy. Dear Lindy, I went in every day for three months and just I'd read through a box. To Mrs Chamberlain. With many loving thoughts. I want to send my greetings and warm admiration. I actually was incredibly excited as I started reading because I realised that I was just going to be privy to this extraordinary act of intimacy. How can people be so self-seeking, so perverse, so incorrigibly dishonest as to not admit when they were wrong? I was wrong. It was just so beautiful um, what people wrote to her. It was kind of astonishing for a playwright to see the kindness of human beings in this in this collection it was it was really humbling i still cry for you but not as much in bed in the pantry or in the laundry when i'm in the garden i seem to be more joyful remember too that you can hold your head up high which is more than some people can do Can you tell me a bit about this Yes, one? well, this one was written especially for her. Remember this voice? Oh, my name's Elizabeth Guy and I'm 92. Elizabeth now lives on the New South Wales coast in a retirement village. She started writing to Lindy after she visited the campsite where Azaria was taken from her tent. I had to do something. So that was all that I thought I could do at the time, was write to her, to support her. You know, let her know. I knew she was innocent. Alana Valentine, who poured through thousands of these letters, saw many like Elizabeth's. 
they would talk about how they enter her story through their own story. I did send her one of the poems that I had written actually over a tragedy in my own life. Mothers would often talk about near misses that they'd had with their own children. They would talk about uh, experiences in their life. Oh, well, my sister and her family were coming over to stay with us, hadn't seen them for two years and got everything, beds ready for them to stay in and everything. The minister came to tell me that he got a message that had an accident, a car accident, and that's the only time in my life I fainted because it was a terrible shock. Uh, in their religious life, in their life as parents, they would try to understand her perspective from where they were. So prisoners were writing to her. There were a lot of prisoners. There were a lot of uh, Seventh-day Adventists, of course, some for, some against. And it was really fascinating to me how this archive is not really just about the Chamberlain case. It's actually this kind of snapshot of life in the 80s and how people were telling their story to Lindy to show her that they either understood her or condemned her. I had one day come across these very, very nasty letters and uh, Lindy said to me, oh, yes, they're the comic relief. And I said to her, what do you mean the comic relief? They're abominable, you know, various expletives, but really nasty, vulgar. There was one that had I don't know what it was, some form of dried body fluid had been put onto it and there was a pornographic cutout of of a head and it it really was very ugly. And she was calling them the comic relief and she said to me, look, once you've read 10,000 people saying, oh, you're a Christian martyr and you remind me of Christ and you remind me of Job and you remind me of all these biblical figures, she said, they all mean beautiful things. But Actually, the ones that are unusual then do actually become this distraction. By the time you've read a few hundred of these in a row, then you are starting to feel depressed. You're starting to feel like, oh my goodness, you know, what is my life like? And then you get one of these other letters and it puts it all back in perspective and it's like, oh, Life's normal there, and you can, you know, you can continue on. Probably the one that um, holds the essence of everything, I suppose, is very early on. I've been getting, you know, our sympathies are with you and all sorts of cards, and then I got one that simply said, my heart bleeds. And that's the one that stands out in my memory because it was so apt and it meant the person couldn't put their thoughts into feelings. And it was like how I felt. And it just said so much and still does. After the death of her child, Lindy carefully kept every piece of mail sent to her. Lindy knows not just every letter, but she has annotated every letter. The initial process is 
sorting them, stapling the letters together. Every letter has its own individual manila folder. Drop them in a folder with a name on it. Every manila folder has a little summary on a yellow post-it note. So that when you're looking for something, you only read the tags. She has um, summarised them at the top on the right-hand corner of the file. So that you do no more than read, say, anything from 10 to 30 words and you know everything that's in that whole letter. There was a dingo letter which had witness, question mark. When I say dingo letter, a letter about people's own experience of dingoes and she wondered whether that would be interesting to be used as part of the evidence. And at one stage I was getting about 400 a week, I think it was. Lindy, I want to ask, were you ever overwhelmed by the volume of letters you received? Was there ever a day that you just felt like, oh, I just don't want to read another letter? <laughs> many a day. Many, many a day. And it, it, it certainly to the census in prison, I ended up giving the job to one lady and she's like, oh my goodness, Lindy, if I read another one of them, I'm going to go mad. At one point, Lindy said to me when I was talking to her about all of these materials and why she'd kept them, she said to me, look, this is all we have that remains of Azaria. And, of course, from her perspective, I understand that what she doesn't have is her child. But on the other hand, what she does have is this huge, huge trove of materials. And I couldn't imagine any other baby that had generated so much paperwork, so much correspondence, so many material artefacts, so many stored records and objects. And so I think Azaria must be one of the most archived babies ever. I can't imagine another, probably Jesus Christ, I guess, but he lived longer than that. For Alana Valentine, Lindy's archiving is a discipline in grief. This woman who everyone said, you know, was a kind of indifferent mother has taken 38 years to file every piece of paper that has her daughter's name on it in this extraordinary collection and treated it like the most beautiful scholarship. To me, that's what, that's what I'm interested in, not just what we record, but, but what that grieving process has been for her. How I'm in the background of your mind... Um, doesn't matter whether the child is 45 or died as a nine and a half week old. They hold the same level of thought. There is no differentiation. I'm your host and historian, Tamsin Peach, and you've been listening to History Lab, the afterlife of evidence. If you want to find out more, head to historylab.net. Next time on History Lab, we look at the history of love and the strange places it can be found. 
One of them I opened up and all of these love letters fell out. And I thought, my God, this is this incredible kind of museum of love in a way. This is this secret history of love within this archive of law. History Lab is an original series created by the Australian Centre for Public History at the University of Technology, Sydney, and made by 2SER 107.3. This episode was produced by Olivia Rosenman. Additional reporting by Ellen Leebeater and Nina Kopel. Collaborating historian is Professor Catherine Biber. Our executive producer is Emma Lancaster. Miles Martignoni is our supervising producer, and he also did the sound design. Marketing and communication by Andy Quain. Special thanks, of course, goes to Lindy Chamberlain and the National Library of Australia and the National Museum of Australia. If you want more history for your ears, head to historylab.net.